0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Pancreatic cancer begins in the tissues of your pancreas, which lies horizontally behind the lower part of your stomach.
2: Unfortunately, pancreatic cancer typically spreads rapidly to nearby organs and it's seldom detected in its early stages.
1: On today's program, we'll discuss pancreatic cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, understanding tumor ablation
1: and biopsies for prostate cancer. According to the National Cancer Institute, more than 50,000 patients in the United States were diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas in 2016. The pancreas is an organ that lies behind the lower part of your stomach, deep down inside. Its job is to secrete enzymes to help with digestion and hormones that help manage your blood sugar, and that would be insulin. It's an important organ with several important jobs.
2: Unfortunately, cancer can develop in the pancreas, and when it does, it typically spreads rapidly to nearby organs, and it is seldom detected in its early stages. While pancreatic cancer ranks as about the 10th most common cancer, it's the third most deadly. Only 7% of those diagnosed with pancreatic cancer live more than five years after their diagnosis.
1: But new cancer drugs and new, more aggressive treatments are offering some hope to pancreatic cancer patients. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic general surgeon and pancreatic cancer expert, Dr. Mark Trudy. Dr. Trudy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having
3: me.
2: Tell us uh, your story about how you got interested in treating pancreatic cancer and studying it.
3: Uh, well, probably like most physicians, they have some sort of a personal story. Uh, back when I was in college, my father was diagnosed with pancreas cancer, had kind of classic symptoms of weight loss, abdominal pain, uh, and eventually became jaundice or became yellow because blockage of his uh, bile duct. Uh, at that time, he underwent kind of standard therapy, was diagnosed with a tumor, uh, went to the operating room, had a suboptimal operation, had a prolonged hospital course, never went on to receive any chemotherapy, and within six months, he died in my arms. Typical story, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, and this was 20 years ago, and that still happens on a daily basis today. How old was he? He was uh, 56 when he died.
2: Were you interested in medicine and pancreatic cancer before his uh, probably death? Probably
3: not at that point in time. So that was oh. still, you know, I'm college trying to figure things out. But I think subconsciously that probably drew me to medicine and then
1: ultimately into my current career. Mm-hmm. And so you you graduated from college. Where would you go to medical school and, and yep. then what happened after in that? In
3: Chicago, Chicago Medical School. Then I came here for residency at Mayo. After I finished my general surgery residency, I went to MD Anderson in Houston for a three-year surgical oncology a fellowship where I focused in, in pancreas and liver tumors, and then I was recruited back here uh, as a, a hepatobiliary and cancer surgeon. MD
1: Anderson, is that a good place? Did you have a good experience? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great place to train, you bet. <laughs> it's <laughs> almost as good as here, isn't it?
2: Almost. He's yeah. always given the needle. He can't help it. Yeah. So what causes pancreatic cancer? Have we figured that out yet?
3: No, not quite. Unfortunately, the majority of, of cancers of the pancreas are sporadic, so there's no particular uh, uh, cause. Uh, there are some risk factors. Smoking is probably the biggest risk factor. There is a small percentage of patients that can have a higher risk of pancreas cancer. So they either inherit some uh, genes, so patients with BRCA mutations, those are associated mm-hmm. with breast and, and uh, ovarian cancer, some patients with Lynch syndrome, and there's a, a subset of patients who have a hereditary form of pancreatitis that markedly increases their risk. But well, in general... What,
1: what syndrome, sorry? Uh, hereditary
3: syndrome? pancreatitis. Oh, but you said Lynch, Lynch syndrome. Lynch it's syndrome, it's
1: associated with colon cancer and a variety of other tumors. Okay, so it's got you've probably got some genetic abnormality. Yeah, in a small fraction
3: said. of patients, but the bulk, I'd say, you know, probably eighty to eighty-five percent of patients are sporadic.
1: So smoking, though, the number one smoking risk factor? is the number one risk factor. And uh, you, you talked, you briefly mentioned uh, the symptoms and. Is it because that the the pancreas is so deep down inside that that it's already grown a significant amount and probably also spread before it's discovered?
3: You bet. You know, there's a high correlation between stage of disease at diagnosis and tumor size. Unfortunately, most patients don't develop symptoms until the tumor is large enough. And at that point in time, the cells that are capable of spreading have already spread. If the tumors arise in the head of the pancreas and near the bile duct, those patients can present somewhat earlier, and they present with jaundice or yellowing of the skin. Tumors in the body and the tail of the pancreas typically uh, aren't diagnosed till late, and those typically are weight loss and back pain. And at that point, most patients are already metastatic.
2: Is it the fact that it's just such a deadly cancer or the fact that it's not diagnosed that makes it so deadly?
3: Uh, I think it's probably twofold. And one thing that makes pancreas cancer so deadly is its biology. It's a very aggressive form of cancer. It has lots of mutations, and it tends to metastasize at a much earlier stage than most other mm. cancers.
1: Metastasize or spread elsewhere. You bet.
3: So up to 50% of people at the time of diagnosis, we could already see on scans that it's spread to the liver, the lungs, or the abdominal cavity.
2: So if we could come up with some sort of effective screening method maybe it would
3: that would probably have the the best uh, long-term impact on survival if you could diagnose it early unfortunately there's no good screening tests currently available obviously that's a, an area of research that you know mayo and other institutions are actively working on
2: what would be what's the direction it's heading like a, a blood test or
3: yeah like any type of screening some sort of a blood test you know measuring uh, uh, cancer dna uh, in the blood or body fluids. The key thing is, though, it's still a relatively low-incident cancer. So right now, even though we may be able to detect it from a cost-effective point of view, screening the whole population. So right now, all the screening assays are done at higher-risk patients, Mm -hmm. those with multiple family
1: members with pancreas cancer or some sort of genetic link. So if you fa- have a family history of pancreatic cancer, you're more likely, is that where you?
3: Uh, so there is, in the general population, there's about a 1% to 2% risk of anyone in the general population of developing pancreas cancer. If you have one first-degree family member, that number jumps to about 4 to 5%. If you have two or more, then it's about, you know, 9 to 10%. So that's, you know, pretty dramatic. That's the risk of developing breast cancer at that point. So two or more family members, that's a, an increased risk. Those are patients we'd probably start
1: looking at a little bit earlier. You have siblings? I have a sister, yes. Okay, and I presume she's alive and well. Alive and well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you've talked about uh, about the uh, the symptoms, and you and you talked about screening, which we don't have. But everybody's uh, there's a lot of hubbub about a liquid biopsy, meaning mm-hmm. you can take a sample of blood. And not only determine whether or not the patient has cancer, but determine the site. Are, are we close to that? Are, are you working on that? We have also? some
3: new assays. You know, Mayo's currently developed. So ninety percent of pancreas cancers have a mutation in the KRAS gene, and that's something that it's pretty common. Uh, Mayo's now developed a new assay where we can measure what we call cell-free DNA or circulating, you know, portions of that mutation within the blood. Uh, it's something we can measure. We're not quite certain how to use it. So right now, you know, we're doing some pilot studies to see how they can make some a clinical difference. Is that to affect how we treat patients specifically. So that's kind of the, one of the exciting aspects that are new.
2: Is most of the research on early detection or is most of the research right now on treatment?
3: Uh, right now, most of the research is on treatment because we still have 50,000 patients every year annually that are being diagnosed. We have to come up with better ways to treat them. And that's kind of really dramatically changed basically since 2011. So for three decades, you know, prior to 2011, the way we treated pancreas cancer is patients, you know, have symptoms, they get a diagnosis. Unfortunately, most patients are already metastatic, and so they just got some palliative chemotherapy. Uh, the other 50% whose tumors we weren't able to see that it spread, we then classified them whether the tumor is localized to the pancreas, which is only about 10 to 15% of patients, or if it's grown outside the pancreas to involve critical blood vessels. Those tumors that were considered operable, Uh, Again, a small fraction of patients we would take to the operating room. We'd perform operations on them, which are uh, pretty complicated procedures. And then if they made it through, and if they're in reasonable shape, we'd give them chemotherapy. We've done that for three decades. We've had no significant alteration in their outcomes. Uh, The reason being is that we know most pancreas cancer patients, their their tumor probably has spread. We just can't see it. Mm
1: -hmm. And so how do you, uh, once you suspect cancer of the pancreas, how do you confirm the diagnosis uh, typically and determine whether or not it's spread?
3: Uh, so at that point in time, it's uh, high-quality imaging. You want to get good scans of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to see if there's any spread, and then you get a biopsy of the tumor in the pancreas to confirm it with the pathologist.
1: And when it spreads, where is the most likely place it's going to spread?
3: Most likely at liver, uh, followed by lung, and then the abdominal cavity. You
1: can exfoliate into the abdominal cavity. And the survival rate, at least up until now, less than 10% at five years.
3: It has been. That number is moving due to the uh, introduction of significantly more effective, what we call combinatorial modern chemotherapy. That's had the probably most dramatic uh, benefit overall for all patients.
1: Yep. We want to talk about that when we come back. Time for a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio. We're talking to Dr. Mark Trudy, who is a general surgeon and a pancreatic cancer expert. We've talked about the why of pancreatic cancer, and in fact, we still don't know. Mm -hmm. We've talked about uh, ways to screen for it. Oh, by by the way, I should mention that the number one risk factor is smoking, when we know that smoking isn't good for anything. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the symptoms, mostly uh, abdominal pain. It's usually diagnosed late because uh, it's so deep down inside and usually doesn't present with symptoms until it's already spread elsewhere. We've talked minimally about the treatment alternatives that are available, but we've got some hopefully new ones and better ones. And tell us about those, Dr. Trudy.
3: So there's three main uh, modalities of treatment for pancreas cancer. One is surgery, which we typically uh, historically only provided to a small fraction of patients. Second is chemotherapy, which also traditionally has been limited to ineffective therapies. And then radiation therapy. And so the key thing, what's really kind of dramatically changed in this, we've gotten very good at doing these operations. Uh, We've managed to get patients out of the hospital with low uh, complication rates, low operative mortality. But again, uh, this cancer needs more than a knife. Uh, chemotherapy's pretty dramatically changed. In 2011, two uh, significant papers came out uh, showing the significant survival benefit of combinatorial chemotherapy, meaning multiple different agents have a significantly more uh, uh, effect on treating these pancreas cancers. And then radiation has also evolved. You know, we have a proton beam, a variety of other ways to deliver it. The key thing is not which of these, it's how do we take what we have and apply it in the right sequence to get the outcome we're looking for. And I kind of compare it to my wife's chocolate chip cookies. She makes the best chocolate chip cookies. I have her recipe. I take the same ingredients. I put them in a bowl. I don't get her chocolate chip cookies. Why (laughs) is that? Because she knows the right amount of each ingredient and in the right order to put them in and in the right manner to get the outcome we're looking for.
2: You really got to cream the butter and the sugar well.
3: <laughs> and that's the key thing. And that's what we're trying to do here at Mayo is taking all these modalities that we have available, putting together in the right order to get the outcome. And what's the outcome? Everyone thinks, oh, we need an operation. It's, we've been operating for three decades. It's not just the operation. The goal we're trying to achieve is to extend a patient's life with the best quality of life. Sometimes a big operation is necessary to get that goal. Sometimes a big operation is going to do just the opposite.
2: So the order was do surgery, then do chemo, then do radiation. Is that what typically patients were?
3: That's typically how it it went. So what we're doing now is we're getting good staging exams. We're trying to figure out uh, uh, what's the best way to treat them. And currently what we're doing, we're using these chemotherapies prior to anything. So right at diagnosis, we have a diagnosis, we give them the chemotherapy.
1: And that's to treat the whole body, You right? bet, because and, and,
3: we know most patients, they probably have seeds or spread of the cancer, we just can't see it. Sure. Uh, once we give the chemotherapy, we have to wait to have objectively measure whether it's working. If a patient's going to get chemotherapy, we have to demonstrate that it's effective. And that's where we also help with these blood tests and with our radiologists, because sometimes a CT scan doesn't show that the tumor shrinks. That doesn't mean it isn't working. A CT scan doesn't tell you if a tumor is alive or dead. So we're relying a lot more on metabolic imaging, uh, PET scans, you know, high quality PET scans that we have here. Once we can demonstrate a significant benefit of chemotherapy, we want to maximize that because that's going to be the biggest determinant of how well people do long term. Once we complete chemotherapy, we then move on focusing more on the tumor and then we bring in radiation therapy. The purpose of radiation therapy is to not only treat the main tumor, but the surrounding structures so that those patients who ultimately go to the operating room have a higher probability of me performing a negative margin operation. What does that mean? So in order for an operation to be effective from a cancer point of view, I have to be able to completely remove the tumor without leaving cancer cells behind. And that's where radiation therapy helps.
2: And you had mentioned the proton beam. Is that one of the uses? That's one of the modalities that
3: we're using. After radiation therapy, then we then take these patients to the operating room. Now, traditionally, we've only operated on patients whose tumors were confined to the pancreas. What we've really done here, and we do more here at this institution than any other uh, center in the United States, is we operate on patients who are presumed stage three or unresectable, meaning their tumor grows outside of the pancreas and surrounds arteries and veins, which we typically would never operate on, because of all the therapies they've gotten ahead of time, these patients now we can offer them much more complicated operations, and our data would suggest that these patients are li- living significantly longer despite presenting with a higher stage of disease.
1: So tell us about uh, going to the operating room and removing a portion, or, or I presume in most cases all of the pancreas. It's a difficult operation, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a very it's hard difficult. to get
3: to. It's a very difficult operation. Even a standard pancreas operation is pretty complicated, has risks. And now when we add patients whose tumors extend outside of the pancreas and involve critical blood vessels, particularly arteries, uh, those risks kind of dramatically increase. Uh, you know, One centimeter in one direction or another may, may require a completely different operation and a completely different set of risks that come into play. So these are truly customized, bespoke operations. We've never done them before. There's no textbook on that. Where Each case is unique.
1: You obviously need an experienced surgeon.
3: Yeah, well, multiples. We work with our vascular surgeons as well, so we're doing operations that have no specific name.
1: And you, you can do it two ways. I mean, you can do an open operation, yep. or you can also do it through endoscopically or through a small telescope. Now, right?
3: You bet. So that's the one thing that also Mayo's been leading in is doing what we call laparoscopic or minimally invasive pancreatic cancer resections. And so, is that, that harder? Uh, I mean, when you first started, it's harder, (laughs) but obviously when you gain the experience, you know, the benefit, like anything minimally invasive is a quicker recovery.
2: Well, especially because the patient then, since we're flipping around the order here, has undergone chemotherapy and radiation before they even get to surgery. So anything that uh, requires less recovery time is good. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. The key thing, it's a lot lot easier for patients to tolerate the chemo and radiation prior to surgery than trying to subject them to that after surgery.
2: Okay, so if we're flipping it around and surgery isn't the first thing that happens, Mm -mm. how is this showing in outcomes for patients? Uh,
3: So we're seeing significant survival benefit. Now, we have to understand, we have to have a comparator. What are you comparing it to? Uh, what we used to compare it to is people we just didn't operate on. They just went on the palliative therapy, and those patients lived six months or less. So when we would had no other therapies, we would just operate because that was better than nothing. The problem is our other colleagues in, in medical oncology and radiation oncology, they've gotten pretty good. So people are living up to one to two years without an operation. That's the standard survival with wow. the old method of surgery. So if we're going to add an operation, we have to do significantly better than that. So we're about to publish our data on patients who we call borderline or locally advanced. These are patients whose tumors typically would be considered inoperable. We put them through our protocol of modern chemotherapy, radiation, and then uh, a big operation. Many of these patients had multivessel, multivisceral resection and reconstruction. So much more complicated operations. And the average survival of these patients is four to five years. That's all of them. When we look at these patients, we could then subclassify them, and we could determine who does better than others. Three things we found. Patients who got more chemotherapy prior to surgery lived longer. Those patients who had a a blood test where we measure a tumor marker, if that number goes to normal after chemotherapy, those patients do best. And probably the most predictive is when we take the tumor out, we have our pathologist look to see if there's any living cancer left. Those patients who we take the cancer out and most of it's dead or all of it's dead, those patients are essentially cured. And we could stratify about how many of those three factors people get. And if you get all three of them, those patients, uh, you know, we haven't even met our median survival, so it's way beyond seven years.
1: Wow. It it's all sounds very promising. You know, it's a cancer that none of us want. What's the average age of the person who gets The can- average age is 71. Yeah. But 71. we're seeing
3: even younger and younger patients, you know, 40, 50 years old. So.
1: Well, there is hope. And thanks so much for sharing all that information with you us. Bet. Thank best you of luck me. to you and your colleagues. Thank you. All right, Dr. Mark Trudy, general surgeon, pancreatic cancer expert. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. John Ebert joins me as co-host. We'll learn how tumor ablation can be used to treat some cancers.
1: And later on in the show, what you need to know about biopsies for prostate cancer. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi,
0: I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says one out of three adults doesn't get enough shut-eye. Cardiologist and sleep specialist Dr. Varen Somers says the body is not designed to tolerate long-term months and months of not sleeping adequately. Dr. Summer says long-term sleep deprivation can cause issues such as heart disease, obesity, and depression. And it can also make health problems you already have worse. He says there are things that happen during sleep that carry over into the daytime and can have very dramatic effects on causing daytime disease, on worsening daytime disease, or on blunting the response to treatments that we have available. For example, when you have obstructive sleep apnea, you stop breathing during sleep, your oxygen levels go down, and carbon dioxide levels go up. Both of those affect a whole series of reflexes in the body. And what that does is it raises sympathetic activity, your fight-or-flight system. Blood pressure rises and may stay higher into the next day. Dr. Sommer says brief periods of occasional sleep loss is not a big deal. It's the issues associated with a chronic, long-term, inadequate sleep that we need to worry about. And in other news, yoga is the most commonly used complementary health approach among U.S. adults and the number of Americans who practice it continues to grow. That's according to a new report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The practice of yoga developed in India 5,000 years ago. For many people, yoga brings balance to the mind and body. The Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program offers many types of yoga, including gentle yoga, Instructor Colleen Pelkey says it helps with balance and strength and flexibility, which really everyone needs, she says. Pelkey says yoga also may reduce stress, lower blood pressure, lower your heart rate, and it can reduce the inflammation in the body. It also helps with digestion. It just gets everything moving. Through poses and meditation, yoga helps you focus on your body, breathing, and relaxing, so you can tune out the demands of your busy world and find balance. Anybody can benefit from yoga, says Pelkey, even people with diseases such as cancer and diabetes. Talk to your health care provider before you start. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian
2: Williams.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. John Ebert.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
4: Tumor ablation is a minimally invasive technique used to treat solid cancers. Using CT, MRI, or ultrasound, an interventional radiologist places special probes into the tumor to burn or freeze the cancer.
2: While tumor ablation doesn't treat the underlying cause of the disease, it can help to relieve pain and prolong survival for some cancer patients. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic radiologist, Dr. Matthew Kallstrom. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kallstrom. It's nice to meet you.
5: Nice to meet you. Glad to be here.
2: So burning and freezing, that sounds exactly like what you should do to cancer. Is, yes. Is that an accurate uh, way to describe what's happen- happening with tumor ablation?
5: Yes. So what we do use is you know CT or MR or ultrasound guidance and monitoring to watch these devices go into tumors, for example, in the liver or in a kidney. With that, we can see that the device is placed accurately into the tumor. And then with freezing, we can actually see ice in the body and we can tell exactly what we're treating and what we're trying to avoid. With heat, it's a little bit harder to see, but we can also very proactively determine what we're going to treat, and with that, get good outcomes in, ter- in terms of treatment of these cancers.
2: Yeah, they're different ends of the spectrum, burning and freezing. They are, yeah. <laughs> but with both of them, hopefully, you end up getting rid of some of that cancer or all of that cancer. Does it disappear, or does it? Does the body absorb it, or what happens when you use ablation on a tumor?
5: That's a good question. You know, A lot of patients ask that question. So if you freeze it, for example, what happens is the cells are destroyed, they, they fracture, they fall apart, and the components of that cell then are absorbed by the inflammatory system. And that's one of the reasons why people are really exploring whether or not combinations of ablation with immunotherapy might be a new opportunity in terms of treatment of cancers.
4: So a couple things. If you go into that tumor, how long do you freeze? So I imagine you freeze the tumor and then that f- area of freeze sort of grows out the longer you sort of freeze, right? And right. How, f- how long do you know how to go and how wide is the tumor? Do you have a real good sense when you go in there?
5: Yeah, we could take an example. So if you took a patient that has metastatic disease that went to their lung, for example, colorectal cancer, pretty common scenario for patients, unfortunately. What we can do is put a couple probes in or around a tumor. We often pick them up like chopsticks, put probes adjacent to it. Those probes have a certain amount of ice that they'll produce. Um, Often tumors that are less than a centimeter, for example, you know, half an inch or so, will generate ice that's about three or four inches in diameter to completely cover it. And when we're watching with CT, we can watch it grow. It takes about 10 minutes to freeze it. Temperatures are starting at about minus 160 centigrade. At the edges, it's zero. So that ice is very cold and that temperature, that cold temperature is necessary to kill the tissue. We freeze it a couple of times. The overall procedure, for example, treating a lung cancer will be about 45 minutes.
2: So lung cancer, one of the types of cancer you can treat. What are other, any tumor in the body?
5: Yeah, it's it seems that way, like it's almost anywhere. We actually do treat tumors anywhere from you know, intracranial or brain tumors all the way to the feet. So it really depends on the application and what you're trying to treat most commonly we treat lung cancers, metastatic disease, we treat liver cancers, both primary and metastatic disease, we treat small renal cancers. So those applications are very common. And as you started off talking about palliation, treating patients that have might, might have a greater burden of disease and we're trying to treat pain, we'll focally treat that, maybe not all of their disease, but the ones that are painful.
4: So we talked about you know, heating and freezing, and uh, you also have radio frequency and microwave and laser. I imagine the science is moving pretty rapidly in these spaces. Are we doing clinical trials to figure out freezing versus ultrasonic versus, you know, burning and these sorts of things? I mean, we're we're figuring out what, what treatment is best for what tumor. Is that where we are in the science right now?
5: Yeah, I think that's a good description. If you took one example, like a liver cancer, it um, turns out that heat is best in the liver. You can prevent complications like bleeding, whereas if you froze it, the risk of bleeding is probably mm-hmm. a little higher because you don't coagulate those blood vessels, and so there's a higher risk of bleeding. Sure. So these technologies are tailored to the organ. Mm-hmm. They're also tailored to the type of cancer that you're trying to treat. So I would say what's where the research is right now is, one, new technologies like microwave-only became available in the past five years or so. A lot of advances in terms of predictability. If you look at um, other technologies like cryoablation, larger ice, faster ice, colder ice. Um, And then probably the most important thing is how well do we do clinically? And that goes to clinical trials. We've run a couple of clinical trials in treating patients that have metastatic disease in the lung. We've looked at patients that have painful metastatic disease to see how well that works. Um, we're now going to go after liver cancers and see exactly how well do patients do in terms of their outcome and survival.
2: So do you use this, um, do you use tumor ablation along with chemotherapy and radiation? Is it just one of the arsenal of ways you ba- battle cancer?
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's uh, one of the tools that are used to try and treat patients that it might have a particular problem. Um, For example, we have multiple communications with radiation oncology and our medical oncology colleagues to talk about what's the right therapy for that individual patient. And sometimes, even though both therapies might on the surface be equivalent for that particular patient, maybe it's best to go with radiation first or ablation first, depending on what you're thinking about in terms of their long-term survival and risks and complications associated with what you're trying to do. So
4: you talked about multi kind of modality therapy. And when does an oncologist call you in? Will they sometimes say, let's shrink it a little bit with the chemo and then let's call you in to ablate it? Will those sort of things happen?
5: Yeah. So you'll see patients that might for the first time present with metastatic disease in their liver, for example. Question is, what do you do? Do you do surgery? If it's really deep in the liver, maybe you lose too much liver and you'd be better off doing a focal therapy and preserving options for the future like radiation therapy. So it'll be often at depending on early presentation, trying to eradicate all of their cancer, go to cure or remission. might be later on in terms of palliation. Maybe they have something that's growing in the presence of other disease that's under control. Um, And again, for palliation, treating patients that might have symptoms.
2: And what is the research? What's the future hold? I mean, it seems like what you are doing then is you're trying to figure out, you take this patient with this tumor, and then the other variable is... You use the radio frequency or the laser, you know, burn freeze. How yeah. do you start to figure out after a while? Is that just what the future holds is narrowing in the windows of what you use when?
5: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of variables, mm-hmm. a lot of different types of cancers, a lot of different types of technologies. I think where, the, where we're going in terms of trying to understand better is if you went after a particular type of problem that a patient might have, can we improve their survival, one, so we're looking at lung cancer, metastatic disease treatment, can we have an impact on their uh, quality of life? And so you have to measure that and compare it, for example, to surgery. Is it better to resect that early or to do ablation early, potentially, for some patients? And with the evolving background of how well patients do in terms of their systemic therapies with medical oncology, that paradigm continues to shift. And so we're starting to think that preservation of tissue is a real key part of this. You know, for example, if you do multiple lung surgeries, you can get to the point where somebody might be a pulmonary cripple. You know, now they're really impacted in terms of their quality of life. But if you are very strategic in terms of when you sequence treatments, you can preserve quality of life, you can get equivalent or better outcomes.
2: We've been talking about tumor ablation with Mayo Clinic radiologist, Dr. Matthew Kahlstrom. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. John Ebert.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
4: Prostate cancer is one of the most common types of cancer in men. Usually prostate cancer grows slowly and is initially confined to the prostate gland, where it may not cause serious harm. However, while some types of prostate cancer grow slowly and may need minimal or even no treatment, other types are aggressive and can spread very quickly.
2: Your doctor may recommend a prostate biopsy if a PSA test shows levels higher than normal for your age or your doctor finds lumps or other abnormalities. Here to discuss prostate cancer is Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Landon Trost. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you again, Dr. Trost. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. What are the risk factors for prostate cancer?
6: Yeah, good question. The biggest risk factor is being a man. Uh, If you're you're a man, you're essentially, if you live long enough, you're most likely to end up with prostate cancer at some point. But the key question is which of those are going to be the ones that go on to threaten your life versus those uh, that are going to be there when you're when you pass away and don't need to be treated. Other risk factors that put you at higher risk of this is if you have a family history of it. So in particular, first order relatives, so brother, father, um, there are some that continue to show up positive over time, though, such as being African-American. Uh, older age in general, um, and then family history. Those are, are pretty strong ones. So.
4: And it's those strong ones that I think guide clinical practice. So in primary care, we think about who should be screened for prostate cancer. Screen. Should we be screening for prostate cancer in primary care?
6: It's a great question. And in primary care, I think you have the most difficult <laughs> uh, time deciding uh, who to screen because it depends on who you listen to. And um, If you go to the guideline bodies from like urology for example they do recommend screening uh, nearly all men age 55 to 69 if they are expected to live 10 to 15 years or more Uh, on the other hand only those who are high risk should be screened in the 40s or so and then those who are 70 and above um, really the default should be not to screen unless they're you know running multiple marathons in a week or somewhere you really expect them to live a long time Um, however there are other guideline bodies that would um, suggest a less aggressive screening strategy and those have changed a little bit over time. Um, there was that U.S. Preventative uh, Task Force's screening group that originally said don't screen and then more recently amended theirs to match um, the urologist recommendations to screen in certain groups. So great question.
2: What are the signs or the symptoms of prostate cancer? That's the
6: problem. So um, like many deeper seated cancers, oftentimes they don't have any signs or symptoms until they're, they're very far advanced. And those are the types of cancers where we look for screening-type tests. Is there a blood test or an imaging test or something that can um, help us detect it earlier? And prostate cancer is one of those that's, that's difficult to test. Uh, and that's some of the controversy that surrounds a lot of these with PSAs and biopsies uh, because they're not perfect screeners.
4: Could could you make a comment about the MRI? Because I think that's really changed clinical practice quite significantly as getting an MRI for, for the prostate when we're suspicious. It seems like the urologists are recommending that a lot.
6: Oh, no, it- great question. And I think the science is not 100% in on it yet, but definitely MRIs are, are being found more and more to be uh, better predictors or perhaps uh, a good additive test to PSA to help uh, diagnose the prostate cancers that are important, the ones that need to be treated um. So it's definitely improving in recent times as a, a screening tool. But even better, now we're able to correlate biopsies with the MRI. So if you get a PSA that's suspicious, you can then get an MRI that shows you where it is and how, how suspicious the tumor looks, and then you can get a biopsy directly of that area. It's a far improvement from 10 years ago.
4: And the MRI is so good. My understanding is you can predict histology based on the MRI. Is that true?
2: Yeah. In
6: many cases, you can predict how aggressive of a yep. malignancy it might be with it. Yep, that's correct. So-
2: Is a biopsy always necessary to diagnose prostate cancer?
6: I think technically the answer to that is yes. Uh, Biopsy remains really the only way to definitively state that you have a prostate cancer. Uh, There are certainly other tests that will make you highly suspicious that it's a prostate cancer and especially certain ways that the cancer can spread. Uh, But even today, um, a biopsy is typically mandatory before you'll undergo any sort of treatment.
2: Even if a PSA level is high in the uh, blood test, that doesn't qualify it as being uh, prostate cancer?
6: No, that's a good question. So yeah, if your PSA, for example, is over 1,000 and on imaging you'll see multiple areas that'll light up, you'll be highly suspicious that it's prostate cancer, Uh, but typically they'll still obtain a biopsy of one of them before treating.
2: How big is the risk of infection from a biopsy?
6: depends on what uh, is defined as an infection. The less severe, less dangerous ones are gonna be about 4% of the time. Um, So again, about one out of 25 men who get a biopsy, you're gonna get some form of infection. But the ones that people really focus on where you're hospitalized and you have what we call sepsis where you get a a bloodstream type infection, that's more around 1%. And it sounds low, uh, but it's a real number. And if you're the one in 100 that it happens to, it's a dramatic, uh, scary, life-threatening type situation.
4: What are other uh, uh, adverse, you know, side effects or other complications from biopsy other than infection that men need to be aware of?
6: The biggest one is blood. Um, so you'll get blood in basically any of the orifices that's down there. So blood in the stool, blood in the ejaculate, blood in the urine. Um, and those are common. Those are expected after the biopsy for a period of time. Um, occasionally, men will run into other urinary issues where they can't urinate for a period of time or what's called urinary retention. Um, but those are the main ones. Um, You can get fevers and other things too that are are temporary and limited, Uh, but infection uh, and blood are the two that we worry about the most.
2: And is a biopsy always accurate?
6: No, great question. So if we see cancer on the biopsy, uh, then that usually is confirmatory that there is indeed a, a cancer there, and that usually can help you decide how aggressive it is too. But more concerning in many ways is when we don't find something. So you have a really high PSA, you underwent a biopsy, you underwent the risks, and we don't find cancer. Um, and that uh, often is more concerning because then as a provider, you're deciding, do I repeat the biopsy and repeat the risks and perhaps go up on the risks? Uh, or do we give it time? Or what do we do in that case?
2: What? That just doesn't even seem like that's possible. What ends up happening with a typical patient when that's the situation?
6: Well, sometimes um, in the past, they would do random biopsies. Uh, and that still is, is common practice today for things where you essentially do 12 biopsies just randomly into the prostate. And you hope that the cancer is big enough that it hits it or that your core um, you know, grazes it. Uh, but more and more uh, providers are starting to order these MRIs and then correlate the findings with the MRI with the biopsy. But on occasion, you'll have a high PSA, normal MRI, and you're still stuck with this uh, dilemma of do we do the biopsy? And if it comes back negative, now what?
4: So then what we do is we follow them. We'll recheck the PSA, and then if it goes up again, we'll be knocking on the urologist's door, typically is what we do.
6: Yep, exactly. And uh, that's where you run the risk of, you know, this is my sixth biopsy, and, mm-hmm. and that's where the infection risks go up and other things with it. Um, so oftentimes primary care will refer to urology when it gets to a point of um, a screening test comes back abnormal. But that primary discussion of the risks and benefits of screening really happens with primary care, I would say, the far majority of the time.
2: We've been talking about biopsies for prostate cancer with urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Thank you for joining us.
6: Oh, thank you. It's good to be with you.
2: And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag MayoClinicRadio or send us an email at Radio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. John Ebert, I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.